Amen. I was thinking about them as they were singing this song. I was thinking about some people that I know that I'm praying for, that they'll come to faith in Christ and just how God's sacrifice, the blood of Christ, will provide forgiveness for their sins. And I was also thinking about when you and I accepted Christ, that his blood made it possible for all of our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins to be covered by the blood of Christ. There was a lady uh, in a previous church, and, and Mindy and I were good friends with her, and she just, she just didn't like those old blood songs. Didn't, didn't like it when the church sang about those old blood songs, she said. I just don't like it. She happened to be a, a biologist who worked in a blood lab, too, so I don't... <laughs> She might be listening today, so if that's you, you know who you are. So I like the blood songs. Amen. Let the men pray. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let the men pray. And so if you have your Bible, I invite you to open to me, uh, open with me to 1 Timothy 2. There's a lot of things that men could be known for. A lot of good things, but I can't think of anything really better than this that people would know that you and I are people of prayer and men of prayer. So Timothy is a young man recently having stepped into this role of pastoring his first church at Ephesus. It was a church that Timothy and Paul knew well. They spent three years there discipling believers and building up the church. They leave and eventually they go back and, and uh, some of the concerns that Paul had came to fruition. There were some matters that needed to be cleaned up, some things dealt with. And so he asks, commends Timothy to stay there and pastor the church and certainly evidence that Timothy had his work cut out for him, perhaps a little bit overwhelmed with God's call and the responsibility that was being placed upon his shoulders. There's this sense that as you read this letter that perhaps Timothy is entertaining some thoughts of walking away. Therefore, Paul writes to him in the very first chapter, in the third verse, he urges him to remain. Don't give up, Timothy. Stay with it. You can do it. And not only does he encourage him, but Paul then provides him with some guidance, prescribing a strategy to lead the church, the congregation forward towards spiritual health. And as we've seen before, the key to this letter is in chapter 3, starting at verses 14 and 15. This is really the key to this whole pastoral letter. Verse 14, these things, Timothy, I write to you Though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And so church conduct, life together, it's kind of what this strategy, providing instruction for this. So what was the health strategy? Do you remember? Uh, and by the way, when we're talking about health of the church, we're not talking about those people. When we're talking about church health, we're not talking about other Christians. 
Church health is about me and it's about you. These are some priorities. And so do you remember what Paul said to Timothy? He said, start with doctrine. Keep God's word at the forefront of the life in the church. Carefully follow the words of scripture to the apostolic teaching, which also included the apostle Paul. And so Timothy, especially when you see this last, Second Timothy was the last letter that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. He's in a Roman imprisonment the second time. He knows that his life is about to end. And so the very last letter he writes is Second Timothy. And there he admonishes him over and over to study the word, pray, preach the word, and devote yourself to these things. And so he begins with church doctrine. You and I as God's people, being grounded in the truth. Second, he says, pay attention to church discipline. In a nutshell, that means that everyone in the body of Christ needs to be connected in relationship with other Christians for the purpose of fellowship, but also of accountability. Um, Some of us may have some negative thoughts and ideas, attitudes towards accountability, but Accountability is a good thing. All of us need to be accountable to other people. And so church discipline is about accountability. And so kind of the idea there is in the church, we don't want to sweep matters under the rug. So if we know there's an error area of the ministry that's not the way it needs to be and there's some issues in essence, he's saying, don't sweep it under the rug. Don't let the dirt build up, but deal with it. In order to keep the church healthy, certain matters as they arise need to be addressed. They need to be dealt with. Right? If you were running your own business, your own company, and there were problems in certain departments or with personnel, you wouldn't just ignore it. Right? But for the sake of the health of the business of the company, you have to deal with this. Likewise, spiritually in the church. And this morning, we're going to examine this next issue, this issue of prayer. And I want to build upon what we saw last Sunday in some more detail. And I'm going to pretty much go through the same text, a few other insights, but specifically want to add verse 8. So more specifically, was we're going to see Paul in this text now challenges Timothy to ensure that the men in the church are actively praying, that the men are covering themselves and covering their families and covering the entire congregation in prayer. And so read with me starting in the first verse, chapter 2. Therefore I exhort, beseech, urge, First of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. If you notice, uh, let me just stop there. Back in verse 1, he says, pray for all men, and the word is anthropos. And there in verse 4, he desires all men, anthropos, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5, for there is one God 
and one mediator between God and men. The man, and the word men there is anthropos, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, anthropos, all men, to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth of Christ and am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 9, looking at what Paul says about women, but we're not going to do that on Easter Sunday, because that may not be the most popular topic to deal with, with what he says about women starting on Easter Sunday. But hey, let's pray for just a moment. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your presence with us, and we thank you for the Bible. As we read your word, as we see it with our eyes, if we can see, and as we hear it with our ears and meditate upon it, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us for your glory and for Jesus' sake, we pray, amen. So there's some exhortations in this text. Covered some of them last Sunday, and, and so I want to just touch on those very quickly and then provide some additional application for us from verse 8. In the first verse, Paul exhorts Timothy, I urge, then he says, I charge, I I urge you, and that word urge there is parakaleo, is a strong word, and Paul is beseeching Timothy. He's entreating him. It's a type of, of pleading, almost begging for him to keep this command, urging strongly, urging him to recognize the priority of prayer. Timothy, make prayer a priority. Verse 1, first of all, which conveys priority. First of all, priority. So prayer is to be one of the top priorities in the life of the church among all of us as God's people. And Paul says two things regarding this priority. He first says all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. And he lists four words. They're almost synonymous, slightly different, but prayers a general term for earnest praying, for sincere and fervent praying, just offer prayers. And then he lists supplications to petition God to make requests, coming before him in humility and in need, almost with a sense of us seeing ourselves as beggars, coming boldly before God with supplication, then intercession, intercessory prayers to secure or to attain from God something for someone else, to effect change for someone else on behalf of another person, intercession, and then finally the giving of thanks, expressing gratitude, the word is Eucharisto, gratitude, being grateful to God, recalling his faithfulness and kindness and goodness to us, prayer, supplications, Intercessions, thanksgiving, 
Paul says prayer is a priority, all kinds of prayer, and then for all kinds of people. Look at verse one. He says, for all men, all kinds of men, all kinds of people. And he lists some examples for kings, for those in authority, for everyone. You know, our tendency, our practice regarding prayer is we're quick to pray for ourselves and we pray for our circle of friends and our family. What we have a tendency to do is to pray for our favorites, for our inner circle. We pray for our domain, for myself and my wife and my family and my friends. But our tendency is not to pray for people we don't like. We don't always pray for those persons in positions of power. We don't always pray for those persons with authority. We tend to ignore them, or instead of praying for them, our tendency is to criticize them. For those persons in positions of authority that we dislike or despise, we don't pray for them. I'll give you an example. Our president, President Biden, or Vice President Harris. If we don't like them, we don't pray for them, we just criticize them and listen to other people criticize them. But that's, that's not what the Bible says for you and I as his people. Or we might not pray for our school principal. We don't like some decision he or she made. Or we don't pray for the teacher in the classroom or the police officer or the local tax assessor or even the pastor. We don't we don't like them, our tendency is not to pray for them. And in the place of prayer, we substitute criticism and malign them and gossip about them and then listen to our favorite social media outlets attack them. But that's not what you see in Scripture. That's not what God calls us to do. And this, this steps all over my toes, this probably stepping all over your toes. We're to recognize the priority of prayer, all kinds of prayer for all kinds of people, for all men, and especially, Paul is saying, for those in positions of authority. This could even include that boss, that supervisor who is over you at work, and you just don't like him. You just don't like her. Scripture is saying we need to pray we need to pray for those people. Maybe, maybe they, in fact, they might be right about some things and we might be the one who has the attitude issue. And so as we pray for them, God might start convicting us ourselves and of our attitude. And then look at verse seven. He also adds, which should also include the nations, the Gentiles. And specifically from verse four, to pray according to God's desire. He says, this is God's desire, that all of these people would be saved and would come to the knowledge of truth, all men. Verse 6, he adds, Christ gave himself as a ransom for all of them. And so we are to pray for them. And we are, we are praying with all prayer and supplication and intercession and thanksgiving for all persons and for all nations, for all people groups, that all would be saved. Notice verse 3, Paul says, it is good and pleasing 
and acceptable to God when we do that. You want to please God? You want to find God's pleasure upon your life, in your life, for your? Then he says, pray, instead of criticize, pray for other people. John Stott made the following comment regarding this, this, this section of uh, scripture. Now, quote, some years ago, I attended a public worship in a certain church. The pastor was absent on a holiday, and a lay elder led the pastoral prayer. And he prayed that the pastor might enjoy a good vacation, which was fine, and that two lady members of the congregation might be healed, which was also fine. We should pray for the sick, but that was all. And he went on to write, the intercession could hardly have lasted 30 seconds. I came away saddened, sensing that this church worshiped a little village God of their own devising. There was no recognition of the needs of the world and no attempt to embrace the lost of the world through prayer. I read that, and I wonder, began to wonder what might be different in Ukraine this morning if God's people were given to fervent intercessory prayer for peace. I wonder what might happen in this country, how things might be different if God's people were devoted to praying for our president and our leaders. I wonder how much more fervently would the baptismal waters of our church be stirred if God's people were on their knees praying for the lost. And I wonder how different marriages would be if God's people were burdened to intercede for husbands and wives. I wonder how might the work in Portugal today where the Milam serve and where we're beginning to support another missionary there be different if God's people were faithful in the ministry of prayer and even go further, that's what I mentioned in the text, but even of prayer and fasting. Let me add a word, a comment on the, the biblical theological tension. I know some of you are thinking about verses four through six, and there is a tension there. And just a comment, namely, the way we pray is to be in alignment with God's word and with what God desires. In other words, we're to pray with God's heart. And these section of verses certainly let us see what God's heart is, what his desire is. And he says, it is for all men, all men, anthropos, which refers to all human beings to be saved. For all the nations to come to faith in Christ. God's saving purpose has never changed. It's the same in Genesis 12 as it is in the Great Commission in Matthew 8, 28 and Mark 16. You remember in Genesis 12, God calls Abram, who later becomes Abraham, to be in a right relationship with him, to follow him, to be obedient to him. And he says, Abraham, I will bless you, and through you I will bless all nations, all people groups of the earth shall be blessed through you. It sounds like the Great Commission, right? Go make disciples of all nations, of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and I promise you I'll be with you always, all for the purpose of blessing the nations, of reaching the nations. 
making the point consistent with verses four through six. There is only one God. Don't, don't read that and just skim past it. We believe the Bible and the Bible says that there is only one God. And that means any other religion that worships another God, they may worship another small God, but the Bible says they're not gods. There is only one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Thus, God desires, this one God desires all men to be saved through this one man, this one mediator, Christ Jesus. That's what we preach. That's what we believe. And the text says that's how we pray. Yet, we're also mindful and this gets to this tension of the doctrine of election that runs through the Bible. In the Old Testament, the scriptures are clear. God loved you and your forefathers, and it says, and chose, God chose your descendants. And the New Testament is equally clear. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That's election. However, these two complementary teachings should be held together and never pitted against one another. Those two tensions. So on the one hand, God, the Bible says, God desires all, all nations, all peoples to come to the knowledge of the truth, to be saved. And then election, on the other hand, lets us know that all are not going to be saved. So I want you to think, Jesus invited us, come all to me, and then he said... This salvation was limited to those whom the Father had given him out of the world. So there's a tension there. Jesus also said, you refuse to come to me, but then he added, you cannot come to me unless the Spirit draw you. There's the tension. Jesus taught both. Some people will not come to salvation because they will not, and others do not come because they cannot. They're both in the Bible. They're both tensions. And the fact is, if some are excluded from being saved, it is because they exclude themselves by rejecting the gospel offer. And so while God knows those who will be saved, he also desires all to be saved. Now try to get your mind around that. I've been trying for years, and I've never been able to do it. Some people say, well, which do you believe? Well, on a certain day of the week, I might believe on the one hand more than I do the other week based upon the particular text that I'm trying to think through. John Stott also comments. And by the way, if you don't know this, he's one of my favorite theologians. But he also comments on this. How then can we as God's people affirm simultaneously God's desire that all are saved and God's election of some to salvation? And he concludes, Christians have been struggling with this question in every generation. It is the continued tension of divine sovereignty with human responsibility. And I've held that position for years and I came from a place in a former city where I was inundated with those who, who just stayed on one end of that spectrum and I was criticized and ridiculed because of holding an unholdable position. And I've always thought I'll hold whatever position I feel like God wants me to hold. And I'm just telling you as I've studied the Bible and continue to study, it is an honest position it's true to the scriptures. 
of those two tensions both being in effect, and I'm very comfortable confessing that my little, minute mind is unable to resolve this issue. It's been debated for 1,500 years, and it continues to be debated. But we preach and we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of men, for the nations, to them, for them to be saved, and we trust God. That's the priority, the priority of prayer. Then he provides the purpose. Look at verse 2. What is the purpose of us praying? He says the benefits are that peace is established, allowing for personal piety to flourish. We pray, thus providing the groundwork for godliness and holiness and reverence. Another concern that I have, and I, I think it's a growing tendency in our culture, is when God's people, when Christians don't like something, they feel entitled to, entitled to create a disturbance. If I, as a Christian, don't agree with something, I'll create a disturbance. I'll shoot from the hip, say whatever I want, even to the point of creating civil disobedience. That's not what the Bible says to do. Paul says instead of creating a disturbance, we're to pray for peace and for godliness and for reverence with a faith that God will hear and intervene and bring forth peace. I believe that. I believe that when you and I pray as God's people that he will do as he's promised to do. Paul says to the Christians, for though we, to the Corinthians, for though we walk in the flesh, we did not war in the flesh. We don't fight according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. That means prayer. Prayer. So Paul is urging Timothy, and I would say he would be urging Hillcrest Establish the priority of prayer in your life. Pray to one true and living God who is mediated, made himself known, made salvation available through this mediator, Christ Jesus, and we're to pray for everyone for the salvation of all nations, for the purpose of peace and godliness, living life for his honor. Then look at verse 8. This is some new territory. Paul prescribes the personnel. He says, I desire, therefore, that the men, it's not anthropos, it's anir, it's a different word. And it refers to males, not just all men, anir, males. I desire that the males, the men pray everywhere, everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So here's what this means. Paul is saying, Timothy, as you pastor that church, do everything you can to get the men, the males of the church, to step up their spiritual game and devote themselves to prayer. That's what he's urging in verse 1. All kinds of prayer, offer all kinds of people. This is the priority. This is the first order of importance. And so verse 8, I desire that the males... Lead the way. I want you to look at the text with me. Again, verse 1, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, anthropos, all men. Pray for all men. In each place, that's the same word. But here in verse 8, 
It's anir, means, again, male specifically. So in the church, among us as God's gathered people, for some reason, Paul is singling out the men. Singling them out. Specific, he is calling them out, challenging the males to establish prayer as a priority in their lives and in the life of the church. Now, I want to raise two considerations from verse 8 regarding these men, these males being singled out. The first consideration is why. Why is Paul singling out the men, which I'll address in just a moment. And the second consideration is, which I want to answer first, does this specific call for men, for males to pray in the church, does it exclude women? Does it exclude women? When Paul prescribes that the men are to lead, to make uh, this priority of prayer, uh, to set the example, does this mean that women in the church are exempt? In other words, is this spiritual priority, priority only given to men? And I will tell you up front, the answer is a definitive no. No. And so let me provide you with four reasons why this command in verse 8, which is issued to males, does not exclude women from the priority of prayer. And then I'll second then consider why is Paul singling out men. So the first, why does this not exclude women? Number one, because it's not what Paul says. That's not what he says. He prescribes men, but he does not say that it doesn't include women. So that's the first answer. And then second, to get a little deeper, if you study your Bible, then you know that both men and women in the body of Christ are spiritually equal. Amen? Men and women in the church, Mindy and I, are spiritually equals. Paul's letter to Galatians, chapter 3, verse 28, says regarding the body of Christ, and you know this, there is not Jews or Greeks, there's neither slave nor free, neither is there male or female. All of you are equals. All of you are one in Christ Jesus, which means that males and females are equal spiritually before God. All of us are sons and daughters before God. Both men and women have equal standing with God. So, number one, the text doesn't exclude women from the priority of prayer. And second, we know that men and women are spiritually equal with God. Now, some of you, you're looking at me with a puzzled look. As if, like, that's not what we've been taught. That's not what we've always heard. Then what you've been taught and what you've been heard culturally is not biblical. Mindy and I are spiritually equal before God. Every boy, every girl in this church are spiritually equal before God. Christ's death on the cross was sufficient for all of us. We're equal. Third, not only are men and women spiritually equal with God, both have equal access to God. Equal access to God. What does verse 5 say? He says there is one God... And one mediator between God and men, anthropos. One mediator between anthropos, between all human beings, men and women, the man Christ Jesus. 
Christ is the mediator of all human beings, of all anthropos, men and women. Jesus Christ is the mediator of us all. So think through this. All human beings, males and females, who know the Lord Jesus Christ are equal before God and have equal access to God. And fourth, the Bible always commends the prayers of women. This command in verse 8 does not let women off the hook. He doesn't, just doesn't exclude them in any way in public or private settings. I've gone through the Bible. I've studied it over and over this week again. There is no place that I'm aware of in the New Testament that forbids women to pray in church, to pray. It's not there. I want you to go with me over back as further to Acts chapter 1. I thought this was pretty interesting. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus has been crucified. He's appearing to the disciples, and then he ascends back to heaven. Start with me in verse 12 regarding this issue of men and women praying. And then it says, and they, referring to Jesus' disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, Look at verse 13. And when they, these disciples, had entered this upper room, and they went into the upper room where they were staying, Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas, the son of James. And it says in verse 14, these all, all continued with one accord in prayer. That's not a Honda. They all continued in one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This was a mixed prayer meeting in the upper room, men and women devoting themselves to prayer, laying the foundation for Pentecost, for the coming of the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. And so the exhortation is all persons... Men and women are to devote themselves to praying, to making it a priority, all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people in the life of the church here at Hillcrest. Both men and women have a responsibility to make sure this is a priority. Praying. So what follows then? Are you with me? Does this kind of quiet in here? Then the second consideration, why then, if all of us have equal standing with God, we have all equal access with God, if men and women are to pray together in the church, other places, home, just everywhere, everywhere, he says, I command you pray everywhere, that means not just in a church setting, everywhere, then why is Paul singling out men? Well, that's a good question. Is he, why is he picking on the brothers? Well, it's likely due to the fact that men then have a tendency to be like men today where we become spiritually passive in our families, in our homes, and in the life of the church. In other words, these men, I believe, were operating in a spiritual default mode. That's the tendency of men to be, when it comes to spiritual living, to be kind of passive, passive, especially when it comes to prayer. Most men have a tendency to be doers. We're on the go, we're busy, we're getting things done and proud of it. 
And the more busy and the more on the go, the more proud we are of it. Most of us as men, Christian men, very few of us had dads or granddads who modeled what a life of prayer for a man of God, what it might look like. We didn't see our dads. I had a good dad, had a good granddad, but I don't remember my dad and my granddad sitting down with me and praying with me, praying over our family, praying with maybe at, maybe at mealtime, you know, and it was kind of a re same recited prayer, thank you for, for all that you provided, and lead, guide, and direct, and you know, that kind of, you know, just certain phrase, I just kind of heard those over, you know, things, but never really saw anyone model that in my life. And so I believe men then as well as today are being singled out to step up and take on the spiritual responsibility of making prayer a priority. And the reason for singling them out is because I don't think they were praying. They probably just weren't praying. And so back to verse eight, look at what the Bible says. Men are singled out to establish prayer as a characteristic of their life. Let me ask all of you brothers here today with me. Honestly, before God, would you say that prayer is a characteristic of your Christian life? Prayer, it characterizes your life. Paul adds how to pray. And notice four admonitions. He says, pray everywhere. Pray everywhere. Men, making prayer a characteristic of your life, praying everywhere. That means you're praying at home, you're praying in the car, in the truck, in the locker room, in the church, in the classroom, on the job site. You're praying. Not just in a worship service on Sundays. He says, lifting up holy hands unto the Lord. And in one of the common postures of prayer in the Old Testament was men were admonished to raise their hands, but there's all kinds of prayer postures listed throughout the Bible. So I don't think the idea is he's emphasizing the posture, but the holy hands is conveying a holy life. Who may ascend the Lord's hill? He who has clean hands. He's living a clean life before God. And so pray everywhere. Pray with a heart, a right standing with God. He says, pray without wrath, without dissension, without quarreling. To be one who's in unity with other people around you in one accord, you pray. And then he says, pray without doubting. You know that verse in James 1, right? Verse 6 and 7. We're all told to, when we pray to pray in faith. Pray without doubting, for if you doubt, you're like a wave of the sea and tossed and driven by the wind and should not expect to receive anything from the Lord when you pray with doubts. And therefore, in public settings, worship settings, in private settings, the brothers, the body of Christ, the men, we reject spiritual passivity, accept spiritual responsibility for prayer to become a defining characteristic of your life. Men, by God's grace, the invitation, the challenge from Scripture is establish prayer as a priority of your life. Brothers, you're God's personnel. Pray for the purpose of peace 
and piety for godly living to advance. And so let me give you a few suggestions for making prayer a priority. And this is for the men, but this is also for all of us, men and women. Just provide you a few suggestions to help you along the way. Number one, for prayer to become a primary characteristics of your life, establish a set time every day for prayer. Establish a set of time, an appointment that you have with God on a daily basis. And then let me give you some suggestions underneath that set daily time with God in prayer. Keep a journal. Keep a journal, a little, maybe a little small notebook and then have a few pages and on that journal, write your name down at the top of the list so that you, when you get along, use that. I'm gonna start, I'm gonna pray for myself. And then after you pray for yourself, write down the name of your family members, your sons, your daughters, your grandkids, your son-in-laws, your daughter-in-laws, whoever those be, your mother, your dad, and just write those down, pray for yourself, then start praying for your family. And then make a list of unsaved people. You know, I'm, I'm not sure we pray much for unsaved folks. Write down the name, if I'm a man, write down the name of some other men that I'm praying for, that I have a burden for, that they come to faith in Christ. Maybe write down some ladies, write list some unsaved people for, write the name of your church down there, Hillcrest, and as you pray each week and you think of specific things, write their names down there under that. And then write the names of your missionaries, of the Milams and of the Crosbys, and pray for them daily and write the name down of the people group in Portugal and India that we're praying for and write government under there and then begin to pray for President Biden every day and Vice President Harris and your are just establish a journal where you're consistent in prayer and then write down the names of those people who asked you to pray for them that you say, oh yeah, I'll do that and you never do. Stepping on some toes, right? Set time with a journal where you're disciplined in prayer. Second, then begin actually praying with other people. Start practicing praying with other people. Start with your wife. If I want to pray, I want to pray us to pray together and pray with her and pray, pray with your kids. You have a grown kid that lives 300 miles away or something, call him up on the phone and say, you've been on my heart, you've been on my mind, I just, can I pray with you for a few minutes? And before I pray with you, is there something that you'd like for me to remember as I pray? Start praying with other people. Find other brothers in Christ, other sisters in Christ where you just know that when you're with him or her, you're gonna pray. Start praying with other people. And then third, expand your understanding of prayer. 2 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Does that mean that you and I are to become monks and go off and live in a monastery and vow ourselves to silence where we pray all day? I don't think that's what that means at all. Expand your understanding to prayer. Prayer is just where I live each and every day where I'm aware of God's presence and I'm in communion with him. I'm sensitive to, the, to his presence Holy Spirit, I'm sensitive to his voice, is leading, and I can just talk to him throughout the day as I'm working, as I'm driving. Talk to him about things that are on my mind and my heart. Talk to him about other people. 
Expand your understanding of communion with God. Let me close. Will you do it? By God's grace, will you say, God, going forward, I can't change my past. I can't undo all these other years, but going forward, God, by your grace, I want to establish prayer as the priority of my life. In your word, time alone with you, being anxious about nothing but praying about every concern, every anxiety, every issue. God, I'm just going to bring it before you and I'm just going to persist like that poor widow who badgered that judge. And I'm just going to persist in importunity, just pray, God. God's calling all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, and he says, this is good. This will please God. And then very pointedly, he's singling out the men. Singling out the men. Some of you, some of you young guys, young men. Some of you are not married yet. You're going to be married in a few years. Some of you are recently married. I'd urge you to establish early on in your relationship to pray. Just to establish that early on. And it'll take courage and it'll take discipline, but you know what? You just establish it as a priority. Make it a priority of your life. Hillcrest, let this be a defining characteristic. My people, my house shall be called a house of prayer and even unto the nations. Would you bow with me?